Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Miro, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I'm delighted to see all of you this evening. We, uh, we know we're going to have people wafting in a little bit later on because of the snow and the ice outside, but uh, we're going to get started on time. Tonight's program, The Future of Espionage, is the Bonnie and Richard Reese Lecture in Constitutional History and Law, and um, I would like to thank Bonnie and Rick and all the Reese family for all that they have done to create and support this great series. I'd also like to thank Rick Reese for all that he has done as both a trustee of the New York Historical Society and as chairman of our executive committee. So thanks so very much to you for this great program and all else. I'd also like to recognize and thank other New York historical trustees in the audience with us this evening, Patricia Klingenstein, Suzanne Peck, and Byron Wien. And I'd like to thank all of you for all that you do on behalf of this great institution. Thanks so much. <clears throat> Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session you should have received a note card and a pencil as you were coming into the auditorium this evening, but my colleagues are going up and down the aisles in case you did not receive one. They will collect the, um, the note cards with your questions later on in the program. We are so pleased to welcome back Philip C. Bobbitt, who is the Herbert Wexler Professor of Federal Jurisprudence at Columbia University and Director of the Center on National Security at Columbia Law School. Professor Bobbitt is one of the nation's leading constitutional theorists. His interests include not only constitutional law, but also international security and history of strategy. Professor Bobbitt has served the US government during six administrations, both Democratic and Republican. And in 2010, he was appointed to serve on the Advisory Committee on International Law to the Secretary of State. He is the author of several books, including The Garments of Court and Palace, Machiavelli and the World that He Made, and he is the editor of Gilmore's The Ages of American Law. We're also thrilled to welcome Stephen B. Slick to the New York Historical Society. Professor Slick is the inaugural director of UT Austin's Intelligence Studies Program. Prior to his appointment at UT Austin, Professor Slick served 28 years as a member of the CIA's clandestine service until his retirement in 2014. Between 2005 and 2009, he served as special assistant to the president and the senior director for intelligence programs and reform on the staff of the National Security Council. He's also the former director for intelligence programs at the NSC. Our moderator this evening is Samuel J. Raskoff, professor of law at New York University, School of Law, and faculty director of the Center on Law and Security. Prior to his appointments at NYU, Professor Raskoff served as director of intelligence analysis for the New York City Police Department, where he created and led a team responsible for assessing terrorist threats to the city. He is also a former law clerk to U.S. Supreme Court Justice David H. Souter. So, um, Souter, sorry. 
I'm reading. Suter. Um, I'd like to uh, ask you, please, as always, to make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now please do join me in welcoming our speakers to the stage. Thank you so much, Louise. Thanks, everyone, for being here. I'm Sam Raskoff. I have the high honor of moderating this evening's discussion. You've already heard about our two supremely distinguished discussants this evening, but I just wanted to say a tiny word myself, which is to say this. If you poll anyone who works in the national security strategy law policy space and ask them who their favorite author is, the author that they read to really make sense of the world, I bet you get a consensus that that person is Philip Bobbitt. And if you ask people in the intelligence community, the people who are real connoisseurs of the craft of intelligence who really understand human intelligence and espionage from the inside out, and ask them who among our nation's intelligence officers represents the very best of what the CIA and the very best of what our intelligence community has to offer. I bet you dollars to donuts they stay Steve Slick. So what I'm here to tell you then is that we have two very consummate experts to talk about this issue with us this evening. Okay, without further ado, some of us have been thinking of late about North Korea and the prospects of an intercontinental missile launched by Pyongyang entering uh, our own airspace. And certainly we've been much preoccupied of late with ISIS and the threat that a group like ISIS or Al-Qaeda for that matter poses to our security. And I want to talk about those issues with you guys uh, as a point of entry into the intelligence conversation because it occurs to me that both North Korea and ISIS are hard enemies to penetrate. They're hard to collect intelligence on. So Philip, maybe you can kick us off and talk a little bit about how we gather intelligence against an adversary like North Korea? Well, of course, we have uh, enormous technological capabilities. Uh, but these have to be guided with some kind of human intelligence. They don't guide themselves. And these targets are too vast. The territories where they are spawned are too large to just have any kind of blanket surveillance. So even though technology will help us here, it won't entirely solve the equation. On the other hand, we do get human intelligence from defectors from North Korea, for example, from uh, people we have captured in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia, uh, and Libya. Uh, but the two have to work hand in glove. The technology won't do it by itself. Steve, ISIS, how do we get into a group like ISIS? <laughs> um, these are classic hard targets as they're referred to by professionals. Uh, in some cases, a hard target, as Sam says, because we don't have a physical structure, an embassy, or another platform in a country. That makes human espionage, human spying, human uh, more difficult to conduct. But as Philip said, um, we have a $75 billion uh, intelligence community in the United States. It's simply not acceptable for them to say to the president or another senior policymaker, it's too hard. Uh, we're not there. We can't tell you what's happening. Right? So we have probably the world's finest array of technical collection 
mechanisms and platforms and the means to interpret what they collect. Uh, we also have, and this is, I think, underappreciated generally, and we may return to it later in the program, we have the, the, the most dense, capable network of intelligence relationships in the world. And these are uh, misunderstood or not acknowledged and uh, enormously important for intelligence community to do their job. So if you take, for example, uh, a place like North Korea, where it is hard to recruit spies, hard to handle spies, hard to steal information the government's trying to protect. But we have allies in the region. Uh, and each ally is interested in its own uh, state's national interest. But for example, the South Koreans are enormously uh, gifted and successful. They have cultural, geographic, and other advantages that we don't. So uh, even though the US intelligence community might be denied physical access to a place, we have technical means. Uh, we have friends uh, that are willing to cooperate with us in activities. And um, I think we do um, not a perfect job, but a credible job of understanding even places where you think it's difficult to learn anything. So what I've heard you to be saying thus far, the two of you, is that we have ample technical capabilities. We have satellites, we have whiz-bang technology that allows us to eavesdrop, and we have the ability to tap into relationships with other nations and, in effect, to outsource the intelligence gathering to them and to partner with them. Um, but let's talk some more, though, about the, the old art of espionage. Is that a dying art within the American intelligence community? Are we still in the business of spy-on-spy spy work, or is that essentially a Cold War relic at this point? Well, things certainly changed after 9-11 because I think there was a widespread recognition, not just in the intelligence community, that the targets against we, which we were going to collect had changed and that uh, sophisticated uh, conversations uh, by embassy-based uh, 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 agents simply wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be able to get us the information we needed. So there was a reorientation in the community towards different regions, perhaps a, a greater emphasis on certain languages, uh, and getting out of the embassy, getting into the street, getting to more remote places, teaming with more military uh, personnel, and perhaps also a greater emphasis on, on uh, actual targeting. Having said that, the, uh, Russia did not turn out to be the benign and cooperative partner that many people, I among them, hoped uh, she would become. And instead continued on uh, in its very sophisticated, very successful espionage uh, habits. So now, having taken on this new assignment after 9-11, I think the community is having to go back to an assignment that it had before. As usual, I agree with Philip. Um, I would have several thousand of my former colleagues back at the CIA and the Directorate of Operations would be shocked to learn that we'd written the death notice for uh, human intelligence. It's simply not true. Too early to call the end of the, the world's second oldest profession. Um, <laughs> but I do agree with Philip in one respect, and that is that it's changed dramatically, not only since 9-11 in the ways that he describes, but um, 
I would say even more significantly because of the, the revolutionary growth in digital technology. So a, a very quick vignette, because I'm, I'm uh, playing the role of a professor these days. And so I get to, I get to teach young folks that want to uh, work in the intelligence community or maybe just understand it better. And for training young operations officers or case officers, people who are going to be uh, recruiting and handling agents for a living at the CIA, they have, a, they have sort of a visual cycle that they use to describe it. It's called spot, assess, develop, recruit, handle, and terminate. So this is the life cycle of a human intelligence operation. And so you, you spot somebody who's likely to have secrets that our government wants to know. You assess whether they may be willing to share those secrets with us. You develop a relationship with the person so that you can have a sensitive conversation with them. You may end up making a recruitment approach and asking the person if they want to commit espionage for the United States government. And then if they say yes to that, you're going to end up handling them, which means just communicating with them. The riskiest part of any intelligence operation is you passing questions and money and encouragement and the person passing back to you the information they collect. And then ultimately cases end uh, when they're terminated, when it's no longer useful to folks. And so without so going just into to it, clarify, the relationship with the agent is terminated. The agent is, is terminated. I think it's an important Sorry. clarification. Yeah. 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 A, a misunderstood term at best. Uh, <laughs> It, it's an amicable termination uh, in, in every case I'm aware of. Um, in any event, so I, I won't go through each of these steps, but imagine you know, what, the, what the, the Internet of Things and what the growth in digital technology does for you in every aspect of that intelligence agent acquisition cycle. So if I'm trying to find who in the world actually works at a secret underground facility in North Korea or Iran or some other place that's that's uh, pursuing weapons of mass destruction. Well, uh, the long way, the long slow way to do it is to meet people at cocktail parties and try to develop relationships and see if they know somebody who happens to work there. In the age of the internet, if you can, if you can break into the network computer uh, and find the mailing list, uh, find the telephone list, find people's home addresses, and even monitor how they interact with one another, you've essentially uh, kicked the first two uh, the first two requirements of the agent uh, acquisition cycle. In any event, so digital revolution, the digital revolution has changed human, I think, forever. And I know our community is doing its best to adapt to that uh, so that they can take full advantage of it. But I gather it's not a, an unalloyed good to have this digital technology available to spies. I mean, there's certainly some downsides on the horizon. They we were more. just talking about this earlier. Yeah. How, how much more difficult cover is to maintain when you have... Uh, uh, vast troves of easily accessible information on when people enter a country, when they come and go, what uh, length, what uh, uh, cover uh, names they have, what companies they profess to be working for. All that becomes really quite difficult when you can pull up that information in an instant. I mean, Someone who might have gone into a, uh, some sort of denied space three or four times over half a dozen years uh, just doing nothing more than changing a surname, I think we'll have a much harder time doing that now. Transiting Frankfurt Airport um, for the third time in several years and the fourth identity uh, <laughs> has become a, a very very treacherous thing to do uh, with iris scans and uh, biometrics and, and thumbprints. And so 
these are tradecraft challenges for our intelligence community. I think we, we can surpass them, but uh, Sam's absolutely right. It's a double-edged sword, the technology. Can we stay a little bit on this topic of partnerships? Because, Steve, I think you're right. This is a hugely important topic that's not typically reported on, um, but that does get to really to the heart of the intelligence project. We're talking about collaboration, essentially, ad hoc collaborations or more systematic collaboration between the American intelligence community or particular agencies like the CIA and partner organizations. Can you give us a sense of how these work? Let's say within the five eyes, the, the famous consortium of English-speaking countries and their intelligence communities on the one hand, but also countries like, I don't know, I'll kind of tick off a few just for the sake of being provocative. Um, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, China, Russia for that matter. How, how does intelligence collaboration with services from those kinds of countries, whether the New Zealands, the Canadas, the UKs of the world are innermost intelligence partners, or these more ad hoc relationships. Maybe you can give us a sense of some of the color. Sure, well, um, I'll go back to where I started in response to the, the first question, I think, and that is that, that, if I can leave you with one message, that these intelligence relationships are enormously, enormously important to the United States. Central Intelligence Agency and the other 16 uh, agencies in our intelligence community couldn't possibly do the jobs we expect them of if they didn't have this network of relationships. And I'm not talking about Five Eyes countries. I'm not talking about a dozen. I'm not talking about a hundred. There are literally well over a thousand relationships uh, that are maintained with foreign security services. And each one is different in terms of its content, its motivation, the extent of its utility. So a couple of things that happen within these relationships. There's information shared. As I mentioned in the Korean uh, context, having a terrific relationship with the South Korean intelligence services may be the most lucrative way to learn about what's happening in the North. Well, there are situations like that around the world where a foreign service can share information with our government. We, in turn, can share possibly technically collected information with their service, and, and both sides benefit. With our closest partners, we actually engage in joint operations share documentation, jointly handle agents, and do much, much more than simply, simply, um, simply pass information back and forth. Whether. And then lastly, and there are a number of historic examples of this, but in many cases, the CIA's relationship with a foreign counterpart or foreign leaders turns out to be what's known as a back channel, or one of the most effective ways to actually communicate between our governments diplomatically on highly sensitive matters that neither side wants to see come out in the public. And this is not to defame or discredit in any way the State Department, which does a, an absolutely terrific job representing the United States interests, has classified communications to and from the State Department, but very often the White House would like to communicate directly to a foreign head of government on a sensitive matter. And in most cases, that communication takes place through the CIA liaison relationship. And so that's little understood, enormously important, and a great value to, to each of the presidents that I've served for. And so uh, these are valuable relationships, and they are very sensitive relationships. And we may talk a little bit later about some of the, some of the, some of the hazards that they're, uh, or headwinds that they're confronting now. But uh, maybe we you, cannot, you can't underestimate uh, how important these relationships are and how much time and energy the CIA spends maintaining them, as well as members of Congress, and members of the White House. They're important, and people spend time on them. I think that's a, really a brilliant sort of overview. Uh, 
in a, such a crisp way you can imagine why Slick was such a successful briefer when he uh, talked to the president. I just add two footnotes to it. One is, uh, we might just say who the five eyes are. You probably already all know. Uh, but it's the relationship between the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And it's unlike, uh, at least in my experience, it's unlike any other intelligence relationship. It, we have NATO partners. We have uh, partners in, uh, in Asia uh, whose security has become part of our security. But this is really a unique set of relationships. The other thing I would say is not quite so positive. And that is that like all human relationships, intelligence sharing and cooperation is ultimately fragile and depends upon confidence and trust. If our partners believed that we were reckless in our use of the information we were given, I don't think they would do uh, much cooperation simply out of emotional or historic attachment. If they're responsible for protecting their own sources and they came to believe that our officials, out of carelessness or recklessness or vanity, simply uh, uh, disclose these uh, sources, I think that cooperation would come to an abrupt halt. I think a perfect segue, Philip, Steve, to a conversation that we're having essentially as a nation right now, it's going on in the press, um, it's everywhere, about the politics of intelligence and in particular. I mean, who in this room, by a show of hands, has now not heard of the term deep state? <laughs> exactly. Now, I think if we had had this meeting six months ago, it would have required an expert in the politics of Turkey or Pakistan or Egypt to know this term, but now it's readily available as an account, certainly a kind of a particular kind of account with a very distinctive political valence, but all the same an account about how our national security bureaucracy interacts with the president. Here's what Michael Hayden, the former CIA director and former NSA head said just last week. He said, I cannot remember another White House so quick to dismiss the intelligence agency's judgments or so willing to discredit them as dishonest or incompetent. So let's talk a little bit about this relationship between the consumer in chief of intelligence, the president of the United States and his immediate staff on the one hand, and on the other hand, the intelligence community, or in the parlance of at least some of the blogosphere nowadays, the deep state. That relationship seems pretty tense. Thoughts? I'll. I'll tackle first the, the designation as uh, that we have a deep state in this country, um, and then we can move on to some of the other tense relations that have been created between the, the current White House and the intelligence community, which I must confess to you, I find you know confounding, uh, entirely unhelpful, uh, and most importantly, you know, absolutely unnecessary. I don't think it serves any purpose to create this kind of hostility, but it exists, and we can talk about it a bit. Uh, so with respect to the deep state, as um, Sam said, I mean, this is a term that CIA analysts have for a decade or a couple of decades been using to describe some of the less developed democracies in the world where we have, where we have uh, 
institutions, security service, police forces, officers, clubs, soccer, football unions uh, that are sort of unelected uh, powers behind the throne that exercise a great deal of influence. And then the elected head of government is only allowed to operate within very narrowly constrained left and right parameters set by these unelected, undemocratic forces in a society. And that is, that is just absurd uh, to, to make the claim that that exists here in the United States, and particularly to put the intelligence community at the center uh, of this deep state and present this deep state as somehow, you know, in, in opposition to the, the, to the current administration and working actively to defeat their policies and discredit their senior officials by leaking information. And I'll, I'll paraphrase again from a good friend of mine, John Cipher, who, who wrote in the, the Cipher Brief, C-I-P-H-E-R, which is a really handy uh, blog site, a new blog site in Washington on intelligence matters. And, and John pointed out, A, that this is nonsense. And anybody who's worked in the intelligence community, you know, if we gathered 100 or 200 uh, intelligence officers here at CIA, where I used to work, you would have no way of knowing if you asked for them to raise their hands whether they voted for the Democratic candidates or the Republican candidate or, or didn't vote at all, don't participate in politics. It's a remarkably varied group with all sorts of diverse political interests, trying to get all of these people to agree on one thing and one course of action that would discredit the sitting president without this being exposed in every major newspaper in the United States on a daily basis is just absolutely ridiculous. And you'll remember that the 9-11 Commission report, the group that was asked to take a look at uh, what caused, uh, what factors led to the successful 9-11 attacks by Al-Qaeda, uh, that group told us essentially that this intelligence community couldn't manage to share information with one another, didn't speak clearly enough with one another, couldn't coordinate its activities, and therefore they created a, a new official to lead a more unified, integrated intelligence community. So their description of what the intelligence community was like 16 years ago sounds nothing like the deep state that uh, the current administration or some people in it would like us to believe is undermining their, their, uh, their programs and, uh, and damaging our democracy. But Philip, whether or not you accept Steve's argument about the existence or the non-existence of the deep state. I mean, he would say that, right. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're now in on it. <laughs> uh, it is inarguable that the current president has expressed in all sorts of ways in the body language and that speech that he delivered in Langley the, the first full day in office, in his disdainful comments about the president's daily brief, the digest of intelligence that the president typically receives daily, at least during the transition, the president expressed contempt for this process and said, hey, I'm not interested in reading this thing every day. Tell me when you've got something new. And of late, this is going to sound very inside baseball, but I think it's worth mentioning because Steve was actually formerly in this role himself. Of late, the president has retained, over the objection of his national security advisor, a jejune 30-year-old um, political appointee in the role of senior director for intelligence programs, that's the top intelligence person within the National Security Council in the White House, over the objections of his national security advisor and indeed of his intelligence professionals. So Part of the job wasn't as hard as we thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> I was under, overpaid and under, underutilized. <laughs> 
Well, regardless of, of how much experience is, uh, is, is necessary in the job, what, what do you make of this, of this dynamic of the president's, uh, I would say, contempt for, or, um, or I don't know what it is, um, but his antipathy for the intelligence apparatus as evidenced by all these episodes that we're talking about? Well, I'm tempted to appropriate a phrase I heard from one of Boris Johnson's college friends. He said, making Boris mayor of London is like giving a Ming vase to a gorilla. <laughs> uh, the reason I, I say that is because I can imagine uh, some ignorant person like myself going through a museum of Chinese porcelains and not having any idea which ones are real, what eras they come from, the techniques that produced them, the aesthetics that they're creators are brought to their creations. Uh, to, to someone from the outside, they might just look like a bunch of pieces of dinnerware. And, and yet, uh, we can all learn, we can be instructed to appreciate things that we were ignorant of in our, in our past. And uh, my hope is that not just the president, but some of his uh, political followers, as they find they must rely upon uh, the intelligence services, will begin to see how really amazingly capable uh, these people are. For a brief time, I worked in the Pentagon. The Secretary of the Navy had a job called strategist in residence, and you could stay for a month, you could stay for a year, and you sort of shadowed the secretary. I was only there for a couple of months. My father fell ill and I left. And I've worked in uh, several different spots in the government. But I never felt in any job I had the same sense of exhilaration I felt in that job because I was working with so many really dedicated uh, people, often young people, whose commitment to this country was just so inspiring. It was just great to go to work in the morning and just to be surrounded by these people. And I think that that kind of uh, inspiration will inevitably show itself to the White House and to the people there. Uh, at least I hope so. Yeah, I, I would just add my where I am in my evolution on this. During the transition, when there were what Sam referred, I'll refer to as some gratuitous insults uh, hurled towards the intelligence community, in particular to CIA, which again, I thought were unfair and, and unnecessary. Um, and, then, and then the day after the inauguration, the president uh, made a visit to CIA to a very sacred place in the lobby there, the Wall of Stars, where the agency commemorates people who died, gave their lives in the line of, in the line of duty. The, the president chose to ignore what I'm told was a, a queued up teleprompter speech, which would have been fitting and appropriate for the occasion, and, and instead um, you know, spoke about some of his relatives and the election victory and some other things that were not of much interest that afternoon, Saturday afternoon, by the way, uh, to the CIA workforce. But so I wrote during the transition that I thought this was all regrettable, but the administration would eventually uh, get its legs and the intelligence community would have many, many opportunities over the course of four years 
to demonstrate to the president and his team just how skilled and expert and valuable they can be. And the fact that they want nothing more uh, than to serve the president and earn the president's respect and help inform the president's policy making. Um, so I'm still hopeful uh, that that's the case. It's very important, it seems to me, that this administration puts in place a, a, a repeatable, disciplined policy making process that's grounded in intelligence. Because as I mentioned earlier, we have probably the world's finest, I, I don't think there's any question, the world's finest intelligence service, certainly the the, in the history of the world, the most capable services at collecting vast amounts of information. And the president has to understand that all of that uh, is there to serve him. Uh, and, um, and it's available for him to ask for. Uh, so I'm, ho I'm hopeful that we'll, um, that we'll get to the right stage. The other people I have some sympathy for in that regard are the two leaders uh, of the intelligence community. One confirmed, Director Pompeo uh, at, the, uh, at the CIA, and, and the second, Senator Coates, who I don't think it's been confirmed yet, but hopefully will be I think soon. It was confirmed yesterday. Was he? Yeah. I think so. <coughs> I've been snowed in. Uh, Speaking of snowed in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was so, good. That was, that good. was good. Anyway, I was, I was literally about to turn to Edward Snowden, so I was, could not have been better. I was just going to say that, that the last point on that is I'd make is that so Director Pompeo and now Director Coates uh, will have a very difficult job to do because they'll have to of course, be, uh, be close enough to the White House and the president uh, to win his trust and the trust of his advisors and participate in all the relevant meetings and policymaking processes. But at the same time, if they continue to generate hostility for the intelligence community and contempt and insults, it's going to be difficult to get in the car and go back uh, to Langley or to, or to uh, Liberty Crossing, where the Office of the Director of National Intelligence is, and, and work with the troops. Uh, if the uh, chief executive is discrediting their work. So I don't envy them that difficult task, but hopefully things will settle down and intelligence will once again be at the center of our policymaking process. So there's one more point I wanted to make on this. Um, I think we're in a period, we're entering a period where the demand for intelligence, the demands on intelligence are just going to be much greater than they've ever been, even in the wartime uh, experiences of this country. And when the president goes to the public to explain or to announce and explain the decision he's taken, on the basis of the administration's best guesses about the future, if he isn't relying on the intelligence services, if he's relying on newspaper accounts or, or uh, uh, radio uh, shows, uh, the country won't follow him. He didn't win the popular vote. He doesn't have a, the support of the majority of our people now. And if it seems as though he's taking decisions either in defiance of or in disregard of the facts, the country will desert him. And that would be a tragedy, not just for his administration, but, uh, but for our, our whole society. Let's stay on, let's, let's put a bracket around Edward Snowden and leaks, maybe we'll come back to that. Let's stay on this question of elections and intelligence. Much in the news also, of course, we're all reading about Russia 
and its hand in shaping the election. And what I want to ask you guys is to take a step back from the, um, the raging headlines and, uh, and from all of the politics um, and the chest thumping that surrounds this issue. Let's just kind of diagnose the issue, as it were, from a clinical intelligence professional or scholar standpoint. This is an information operation, or at least that's one of the things in which this is, um, where the Russians are trying to affect an outcome in an election. Is this unprecedented? Is this odd? Is this unusual? Or is this standard issue for intelligence professionals, regardless whether they're Russian, American, British, you name it? Anyone want to take a stab at that? Sure, I'll just I'll start off. I mean, we call this in the American system a covert action. Uh, and the CIA is authorized to undertake covert actions when the president signs a piece of paper called a finding and asks them to somehow, uh, in certain ways, shape events that are going to transpire overseas and gives them specific authorities that they can use to achieve that outcome. So that's how it works in our system. In the Russian system, they're called active measures. And so with respect to what it appears, or at least what the Office of Director of National Intelligence told us in January, in their community assessment, their, their consensus view of the situation, that the Russian president ordered his security services, who in turn worked through uh, controlled proxies to manipulate the outcome of our election through breaking into uh, private networks and selectively leaking uh, information that they believed would be of interest or somehow damaging to at least one of the campaigns. So I'd say with respect to that playbook, that, that sort of description of activities, uh, breaking into a, or stealing information from a government or from private citizens and then selectively leaking it out through media outlets over which you have some control and concealing your role in all of that, that is right out of a classic Russian playbook. They've been doing that throughout the Cold War and since the end of the Cold War and collapse of the Soviet Union, most of the Central and East European states have have witnessed this exact thing happening. Russian attempts to introduce money into their campaigns and otherwise use these dirty tricks. What remains to be seen is based on the exposure of what they were involved with here in the United States, and we're probably gonna learn more over the next several weeks as the Congress starts holding its hearings. The question will be, will they, will they as anticipated, attempt the same thing in the European elections that are coming up? in the French election, and more probably in the German election, which has to be held sometime in the fall. Uh, they're not big fans of uh, the Chancellor, uh, Angela Merkel, and uh, Russia is, is, I would anticipate, likely to be involved in it. So the practice, the tradecraft is, is not news at all. What is news is that the Russian government had, and the Russian leader had the temerity to call on these plays and attempt to influence an election in the United States. And I think he'll be watching very closely to see what we learn about his activities and more importantly, how we react to it. Well, there is also the uh, possibility that members of one of the campaigns may have uh, either unwittingly or wittingly cooperated with uh, hackers paid by Russia, uh, they may have facilitated uh, monies given to Russian uh, agents or 
agents of influence in this country. Uh, if that were the case, I think that would be a kind of a thunderclap in American politics. And although uh, I, my opinion wasn't solicited on this, and you probably don't have any interest in what my opinion is, I personally hope that we'll have some kind of Senate Select Committee. Uh, some, some committee that has its own staff. It's not, a, it's not a staff repurposed from intelligence or armed services or judiciary that has respected bipartisan members of the Senate, as we had with the Iran-Contra a committee for whom I was the legal counsel now quite some, quite some time ago. I think that that would reassure our country that uh, these charges are baseless and we can... Uh, would go forward without the nagging fear that that somehow the election itself was corrupted by Russian influence with the collaboration of, of partisans in this country. All right, Steve, the Snowden question, or at least a variation on that theme, is backed by popular demand. So let me ask it this way. Of late, we've learned that the CIA was knee-deep in cyber operations, which, by the way, is its own interesting story. And Shocked. Maybe we can... Maybe we can push back or kind of interrogate that a little bit. Um, but we obviously have the Snowden leaks. Before that, there were the Manning leaks, and there's the ever-present WikiLeaks. So I had thought you have to do intelligence in secret. Why can't our intelligence community and its spies keep a secret? Well, uh, I don't want to be in a position of defending our ability to keep secrets because it's clearly a challenge right now. And as uh, Philip mentioned earlier, it, it's a challenge for us because these are national defense secrets that we think our enemies shouldn't have. It's also a challenge in that it may dissuade some of our, some of our foreign partners from cooperating more fully with us if they're not confident in our ability to keep their secrets secret. So the, the litany you read off, uh, Manning and Snowden and, and now apparently somebody who had access to a, a CIA uh, database has shared this information. I would argue that we can keep secrets, and we have. The two examples I'd give you that would be probably most familiar to you would be the Osama bin Laden raid. Um, that was a very closely held secret, very important to the country. It required White House leadership to keep it secret. But recall in the accounts of that that uh, even, the, uh, even the FBI director was told only days before uh, that attack. And so that was how we had to keep the secret. It had to be a very small circle. and Nobody who wasn't absolutely necessary in that circle was allowed to know. And going further back in 2007, there are now some published accounts, including one by my friend Elliot Abrams. I think it's in Commentary Magazine. A great account of the 2007 Al-Kibar uh, nuclear reactor in Deir Ezzor that was discovered by uh, Israeli intelligence. A turnkey North Korean plutonium reactor was sold to the Syrian government of Bashar Assad, and it was ultimately destroyed in an airstrike that most people credit uh, Israel for having conducted. But the fact of the matter is that information was known to the U.S. government of a, a nearly functioning, fully loaded plutonium nuclear reactor sold by one proliferating rogue state to another uh, dictator. Uh, in an area, by the way, that's now controlled by ISIS. Uh, if, uh, if it hadn't been destroyed, you can imagine what a, 
what a wild card that would have thrown in the situation. But in any event, that was known to the U.S. government for quite a long time while we were in discussions with the Israelis and was kept secret. And to have it disclosed would have been very costly. So we can keep secrets. It requires a lot of discipline. And I would again hearken back to the 9-11 Commission hearings, uh, where they told us that one of the things that we didn't do very well before the 9-11 attacks was share information with one another within this community. So we took the order. It was actually, Mrs. Harmon is here, one of, the, one of the authors of the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004, and it mandates the sharing of intelligence information with other, between agencies so that we can get the most possible eyes on a particular topic. Well, we may be suffering a little bit of a rebound from that, and so it will probably be necessary to readjust, and I think we'll probably find that the CIA lost lost the, these materials from some kind of a contractor or something working on a development database. It was classified only at the secret level, so, uh, and a lot of the information, as I understand, was quite dated, uh, but still very embarrassing. It's something we need to do better at. Steve, since you mentioned the legislation that then Congresswoman Harmon was involved with, and, and that was certainly, I would say, the font of a lot of the reform of the intelligence bureaucracy over the last decade plus. Maybe we could talk a little bit about intelligence organization. I don't want to get too Washington here, but all the same, I think it's important to bring out um, what the Director of National Intelligence has come to mean um, in 2017, and maybe also to focus a little bit about internal changes because these organizations, CIA for example, are not static. Um, one day they're more espionage focused, the next day they're more paramilitary focused in the drone program. They're obviously now in the cyber business. Philip, I know you're kind of, you're very um, aware of internal dynamics within the agency at that kind of level. Maybe you can give us a sense of where things have come to rest. Throughout the uh, uh, sort of 20th century, the U.S., I think, did a, a very important job of protecting the democracy from militarizing the state. We fought two world wars. We fought a long Cold War. We fought in many theaters and sometimes uh, in great peril. But we did not put uh, commissars in the army, and we did not run the political arm of the state through military personnel or intelligence personnel. We kept those separate, and I think that was a tremendous triumph that we don't often discuss. We tried to keep the private sector separate from the public sector. We tried to keep international affairs separate from domestic affairs. CIA, with very small exceptions, isn't allowed to collect in the United States. We tried to keep producers, uh, guys like uh, Slick here, uh, separate from consumers, people who would actually task the intelligence agencies to get reports. We tried to keep collectors separate from analysts because we didn't want the analysts corrupted by the collector's concerns or the collectors looking just for information that the analyst wanted to find. All those structures were very successful for us. But like the strategies in an individual's life, things change. And if you don't change your strategies, you'll find that your very successes begin to work against you. Now we're finding that 
much of what we need to collect is in the private sphere, particularly with respect to the digital information uh, we, uh, we need. We're finding that there isn't any real bright line between the national and the international, that they bleed into each other. We've come to believe that having collectors isolated from analysts doesn't really serve the interest of either because the collectors get information that's not really relevant to what the analysts want. And the analysts don't have a feel for how much confidence the collectors have in the information that they're passing on. And despite, uh, I think, very legitimate fears about politicizing intelligence, I think we've, we've come to believe that the uh, political consumers of intelligence have to have a very close relationship with the people who produce it. That if they should come unstuck, as we were voicing fears about earlier, that the whole enterprise just becomes a vastly expensive exercise in pointlessness. John Brennan, when he was the DCIA, introduced a The director of, of the Central Intelligence Agency. Sorry, right. my, one of my right. mandates is translate all acronyms. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, put forward a number of reforms. I think the, the core of reform of which was to take mission centers of the kind we already have in counterterrorism and counterproliferation and make those the model for the agency so that a mission, we'd still have collectors and a directorate of operations, we still have sort of academic types who are doing analysis, but they would now be co-located around the kinds of either areas or substantive agenda like the State Department has or the NSC that will have uh, uh, both functional bureaus and uh, area bureaus. And although the administration has changed, uh, my hope is that these reforms will, will continue to be pursued. I think they are exactly where we should go. And, uh, and I'm, I'm proud of Brennan for having had the courage to introduce them because institutional reform in the intelligence agencies is really uh, not an easy assignment. Let me, let me uh, kind of take us on a somewhat different trajectory just for a moment. A question prompted. I think, is it possible Steve wanted to just come in on that just for a second? Absolutely. Well, How, unlike our presidential debates where everyone is actually encouraging. Can we all talk at once? Yeah, we can all talk at once. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I agree with Philip. I think Director Brennan put in place some, some fundamentally sound uh, reforms within the CIA. Hopefully that will make it a more effective espionage covert action and all source analysis agency. But now elevating that to the structural changes we made in our intelligence community. So as we've mentioned twice now, in, in 2004, the Congress passed a, a seminal piece of legislation, the most significant structural change in our national secure, security community since the 1947 National Security Act, signed by President Harry Truman. That's how long we had gone without fundamentally changing how we how we do national security in this country. And, and I think Mrs. Harmon would agree that law wasn't perfect. It, it represents some compromises, but it did a couple of things. It created a new head of an intelligence community and charged that person, the director of national intelligence, with leading a unified, more closely integrated intelligence community, now comprising 17 different agencies, okay? And that's important. And one guy wasn't running the CIA and at the same time running the community. 
because that had demonstrated that it was not a model that, that functioned particularly well. So I'm not unabashed. I'm disappointed from time to time with the progress we made in the last two years with the stand-up of the Office of Director of National Intelligence, but it is fundamentally sound in my view. And I think it would be a huge mistake if as some of the word that was flowing out of the White House was that they wanted to uh, deprioritize, de-emphasize, exclude the Director of National Intelligence from important functions and substitute again the CIA Director for those. I think that would be bad. Bad for the country. Uh, and again, we'll probably for the third or fourth time tonight cite Mike Hayden, who's somebody many of us respect a great deal. And he held both jobs, the number two job at the Office of Director of National Intelligence and the job as the Director of the Central Intelligence Agency. And he said he couldn't possibly have done both of them at the same time. And so it was important that we split them. Important that these people work well together, but it would be a shame if the centerpiece of our post 9-11 catastrophic restructuring of government were to fall by the wayside after a decade or a decade and a half because it didn't appeal to somebody's prejudice. Homeland, the Americans, John le Carré, Graham Greene, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, your favorite blog, who gets it right? Who gets the look and the feel and the gestalt of intelligence right? Well, for, uh, <clears throat> for reasons a few of my friends here, old friends here in the audience will know, and these guys will know, most of my reading nowadays is confined to Babar. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get much uh, Lacare. Yeah. Um, Did Celeste receive the president's daily briefing? That's the question <laughs> for you, Philip. I haven't gotten to that yet. Okay, got it. John Lacare. I don't watch the TV shows. I've heard some, some of them are quite good. But, um, and my favorite book, for those of you who share that, share that, uh, my attraction to John Le Carre was A Small Town in Germany, uh, in part because I, I read it in college. I think it helped steer me towards what was a satisfying career in, uh, as an operations officer in government. And uh, he, A Small Town in Germany, of course, refers to uh, Bonn, Bad Gottesburg, the Cold War capital of Federal Republic of Germany. And uh, speaking of capturing the gestalt, I think he did a terrific job of it. Okay, well, from art back to life here for a moment. Um, we need more time to talk about this than the approximately four minutes that remain. Um, but all the same, it would be um, ludicrous to have a conversation about the current state and the future of American intelligence and espionage without thinking about law and values and where law and values interact with or intersect the project of intelligence. Now, there's been a lot that's been written and done, I would say, in this domain over the last 15 years. There's a lot that the president's done. There's a lot that Congress has done. There's a lot that the court has done and undoubtedly will do. But I wonder if you guys could give us, I would say, a high-level assessment of where we stand in respect to the project of practicing as one person who is eminent in this field, called it intelligence under law. Philip? I think that bringing our state uh, within the law, having it act within the law, is what we're fighting for. That when we depart from that, 
we just uh, shoot ourselves in the foot that uh, some of the uh, humiliating, embarrassing things that have happened in the last, uh, since 9-11 are examples of battles we lost. Abu Ghraib could be imagined as a kind of a battle that we lost, just as a kinetic battle is lost. Um, having said that, I find it is really inspiring to know how carefully operational people try to follow the law. Uh, I was in a, what I thought was a rather amusing, I'm not sure my counterpart felt this way, a debate with someone in the Just Security blog because my counterparty seemed to feel that only that law that's litigated, that is before courts, really governs the operations of the United States and particularly our military and intelligence officials. Nothing can be further from the truth. There is an immense amount of law, including, by the way, the rules that the White House has announced for targeted killing that require very careful and conscience-rich uh, uh, reflection by our officials. It's something that sets us apart. Now, the jurist, uh, uh, Alvin Holmes, said, uh, he said, uh, law is an experiment as all life is an experiment. And like most of you, I imagine, I don't think our experiment's over yet. I think we have a, have a long way to go. But I, but I also think that, the, that what will guide us through these difficult periods ahead, and I think the period we're in right now is actually a rather tranquil period, uh, will, it doesn't always seem that way, uh, will be our adherence to law, that that is what will keep us uh, safe. I have a very practical way of describing this, and I probably don't have the numbers right because I didn't, uh, wasn't given the question in advance. But in 1981, as a first-year law student, my first job in the government was as a summer law clerk at the CIA's Office of General Counsel. And uh, I believe there were about 12 of us at the time. Uh, and the last I heard, and I'm sure this count is out of date, it was about 175 and counting. Um, and so the presence of lawyers doesn't necessarily ensure lawfulness, but I can tell you uh, there are lawyers involved at the earliest planning stages of every significant operation. And the CIA, frankly, has been burned so many times uh, with making legal judgments in-house and having them later questioned. They now routinely go to the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department and seek out the executive branch's finest lawyers to get a judgment before they move forward with a, an operation that's anywhere near the line you described of impacting a citizen's personal liberties or uh, God forbid, taking, uh, taking a life, depriving life. So it is very much, in my experience, a, a culture of law and a culture of compliance uh, and a culture of service. There's a lot to say about this topic. There's a lot more to say about this topic. But please join me in thanking Philip and Steve for leading a wonderful conversation. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs. And as always, it's a thrill to have you all here with us. 
I do want to thank you, Sam Raskoff, for being our wonderful moderator tonight. And Stephen Slick and Philip Bobbitt, thank you two so much. Let's give them all a big round of hand. Thank you.